0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. stories are something we use, something we tell, a lot of the time, to understand the world. We've been doing this for a long time. We'll probably keep doing it for a long time. Uh, you saw on the screen Danny Hillis' uh, narrative version of thinking about a 10,000-year clock. and We're actually building a 10,000-year clock physically in Texas. Our speaker tonight is a prolific writer. (laughs) This is Sandman, Volume One. (laughs) And he's also a prolific reader. Grew up basically in libraries, he says. And libraries are these time-spanning places where stories and other such things collect. And as a writer, he's unusually transparent about being a writer, about the writing, about stories. And we can think of no one better to talk about the long-now question, how exactly do stories last?
1: Neil Gaiman. Many, many years ago, I remember defining art as something that you could use successfully to stun a burglar. (laughs) And I was very proud of myself for having written enough Sandman to do that. (laughs) Watching Stuart drop it on the stage. Um, I did actually try and persuade DC Comics to do the one volume. Sandman, and failed because apparently bookbinding is not up to the task. <laughs> and also it might kill the poor burglar. <laughs> so thank you, Stuart, thank you to the Long Now Foundation, thank you to everybody who's invited me to come and talk, particularly Danny Hillis, who is not here, but thank you, Danny. Um, I want to talk about stories. The first emperor of China died 2,300 years ago. He did a lot of very important things in China, things they still talk about. For example, he regularized the distance between the wheels of carts. Now this may not seem an incredibly important thing to you, how, how far apart your cartwheels are, but when you realize that all carts and carriages essentially traveled in the ruts in roads, um, in muddy roads that at some point would be mud and then they would dry out, and you're traveling in ruts, uh, Standardizing the distance of your wheels meant that you could travel from one end of China to the other. A wheeled conveyance could go from one end of that vast empire to the other end. He did a lot of other things too. Was absolutely the most powerful man in the world, and like many such powerful men, he became obsessed with immortality, with not dying, ever, under any circumstances. Um, his unfortunate failure to achieve success in this, via uh, the usual magical and alchemical roots, resulted in his death. <laughs> they, they actually tried covering up his death for a while. Uh, They sent his body home in a carriage filled with rotting fish to mask the smell and claim that the smell was the fish. And he was rapidly interred in a tomb that he had been building for quite a bit of his life. The location of the tomb was soon lost. And pretty soon there were only stories. Stories about his tomb. Stories that said the tomb contained unimaginable treasures, including a terracotta army of soldiers uh, and ships that floated on seas of underground mercury. They built whole lakes of mercury and put ships on them. There was another king, whose name we do not know. His likeness was carved in marble and placed on a marble plinth to last forever. And the reason why we do not know his name is his name was carved into the marble on the base of the plinth. But after a few hundred years, the marble peeled away and was lost, leaving the granite on the plinth with the name of the sculptor carved into it, so we know who did it. (laughs) The oldest forms of life around right now, if we are to believe Wikipedia, are probably trees, and the oldest tree that we know of, a Great Basin bristlecone pine in Northern California, is 5,064 years old, which is quite old when you stop to think about it, 5,064 years. Life, again, according to Wikipedia, you can see where I did my research on this, (laughs) is the condition that distinguishes animals and plants from inorganic matter, we are told, which definitely disqualifies stories. But then we discover that it includes the capacity for growth, reproduction, functional activity, and continual change preceding death. So animals Animals live at the outside 300 years really long lived ones trees really long lived ones again 4 to 5000 years stories can live longer than that and we know because we have stories that go back longer than that. There are Native American stories from the Pacific Northwest that tell of forbidden love between a woman of astonishing beauty and a young man, and of how their love was punished, of how the earth rumbled, of the black snow that came out from the mountain top and then how the top of the mountain became fire, killing a great many people only to be stopped when the young woman was pushed in to the flames. And it's a story that survives. It was collected first in the 1920s, and it survived because it contains elements that people love to tell, and to retell a forbidden love, tragic death. But the story itself tells us a lot of other things. It tells us, most importantly, that those mountains that you're looking at, those great big mountains that seem like they must have been there forever, are not permanent things. It tells us that volcanoes can happen. It tells you of the early warning systems, the idea that the ground can shake, that ash will fall. And if you are passing on a story, generation to generation, and you want that information to travel you really have probably about three generations of passing it on as pure information you can say to your children and to your grandchildren you know those uh, mountains over there that look kind of solid well they aren't and ash can fall, the ground can shake, and they will turn to flame, and and this hot, flaming, rocky stuff will come out of them. And your grandson may believe this, but his grandson, when he says, you know, my grandfather told me, is gonna go, yeah, really? It's a mountain. And his grandson is gonna go, you people are mad. No, I'm not passing on that story. But, if the story has things that make it sweet around it, things that make it fun to pass on, things that make it pleasurable to tell, in this case, beautiful women, forbidden love, grumpy gods, somebody being sacrificed into a volcano. People getting thrown into volcanoes, it always works. It is, it is, you know, and the giant list of things that we authors have, tricks that never fail. Right after somebody comes through the door with a gun is throw somebody into a volcano. The Tale of Two Brothers is a story that dates back about 2000 BC to Seti, the second Seti. It was uh, recorded on papyrus by a scribe about 4,000 years ago. Uh, The story centers around two brothers, Anpu, the elder, who is married, looks after the younger, Bata. The brothers work together, farming land, raising cattle. One day, Anpu's wife attempts to seduce Bata, but he rejects her advances. Uh, She then tells her husband that his brother tried to seduce her, and Anpu obviously, very sensibly, tries to kill his brother, who flees, prays to be saved, the god save him by creating a crocodile infested lake between him and his brother, uh, across which Bata explains his side of the story and to emphasize his sincerity, cuts off his genitalia, throws them into the water and they are eaten by a catfish. It's only just begun. (laughs) Bata then says that he is going to go to the Valley of the Cedar, where he will place his heart on the top of the blossom of a cedar tree. So if it's cut down, Ampu will be able to find it and allow Bata to become alive again. And uh, he gives Ampu a, uh, he he tells him that if ever his beer mysteriously froths, he knows to come and hunt down his brother and then uh, Ampu goes home kills his wife there's a theme in these things and it's not particularly cheerful Um, meanwhile Bata has a new life for himself and uh, he has a wife a new wife created for him by the gods and because she is divine Pharaoh falls in love with her and uh she tells the pharaoh to go and cut down the tree on which Bata has his heart, and Bata dies, and then the beer gets frothy, and Anpu goes off, and there's all sorts of fun, uh, Bata keeps getting resurrected, <laughs> first there's a bull, and they murder the bull, and then uh, two drops of blood get rescued from the bull, and they become trees, and Bata, in the form of a tree, now appeals to his wife. But she goes goes back to the the pharaoh, and she says, look, let's make furniture (laughs) out of (laughs) those trees. But as they are making furniture, a splinter enters her mouth, impregnating her. And thus her son is her resurrected husband and uh, becomes crown prince and uh, appoints his brother as his co-ruler. And and it's all fun and games in ancient Egypt. (laughs) Um, And the reason I've told you that story at such length is it's a 4,000-year-old story. That's a long time, when you think about 4,000 years. And a couple of years ago, I was chatting to an Egyptologist. And she was telling me about how they were on an archeological dig with uh, the locals in Egypt helping them as the support team. And they started telling stories around the campfire. And the oldest man told them that he would tell them a story that he heard from his father. And he began to tell them the tale of two brothers named Anpu and Bata. And she realized she was hearing the oral version of something that was written down 4,000 years ago that had been told as a story. 4,000 years, that's right up there with the trees. A is alive. Can they be considered alive? What was our list? Growth, reproduction, functional activity, and continual change. Do stories grow? Pretty obviously. Anybody who has ever heard a joke being passed on from one person to another knows that they can grow, they can change. Can stories reproduce? Well, yeah. Not spontaneously, obviously. They tend to need people as vectors We are the media in which they reproduce. We are their petri dishes. But they can, and they do. Stories grow, sometimes they shrink. They reproduce. They inspire other stories. And of course, if they do not change, stories die. It's fascinating going back and looking through old fairy tales, old oral tradition stories, and watching the ones that just do not get told anymore. There is nothing about them that impels people to say, Let me tell you this story. Whereas stories sometimes will simply enter the oral tradition. And sometimes stories will find, um, they they will mutate, they will change just a little. And they will wind up with an evolutionary advantage over other similar stories. I've been told this isn't true. But damn, it's a good story, so I'm gonna tell it to you anyway in a story about stories, it seems only fair. Um, the story of Cinderella. Cinderella probably began in China. There are, there are definitely, there is definitely evidence that it may have begun in China. Um, there are very few Western cultures in which having incredibly small feet, was actually deemed a mark of obvious princesshood. <laughs> there is a case to be made, he said, rather nervously, because maybe there isn't. Somebody sent me... I, I, somebody heard me talking about this recently and sent me a thing completely disproving it. And I went, no, it's too beautiful. <laughs> um, but... One of the most significant things about Cinderella um, is the glass slippers. They're probably the most memorable bit of Cinderella, the idea of slippers made of glass. There is a theory that originally, those slippers might have been fur, which in French is ver, V-A-I-R, and that through a homonymic shift, they became ver, V-E-R-R-E, and slipped from fur slippers, which sound fairly regular, to glass slippers, which are gloriously unlikely, (laughs) and stick in the memory, and give the story of Cinderella, a tiny evolutionary advantage over all the stories that are kind of like Cinderella, (laughs) of which there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And yet Cinderella is the one that we remember. And people go, oh, well, that's Disney. (laughs) And you go, no, actually it's not. I mean, it, it, it fasci- one of the things that fascinates me is that there are places where Disney would take an old story, a fairy tale, and try and retell it and bump into some of the problems inherent in the actual story they were, they were telling. For example, Sleeping Beauty. Uh, the best thing about Sleeping Beauty is she falls asleep for a hundred years and during that hundred years thorns grow up around the castle and eventually after a hundred years a prince hacks his way in snogs her and everybody wakes up um, Disney ran into obvious problems with that, which is, it's really hard to start a story and then have hundred, you know, a solid hundred years. If, you, if she meets a prince early on in the film, he will be dead. <laughs> it's not gonna be him. Uh, so they made it an afternoon. If you go back and watch Sleeping Beauty, they fall asleep. Thorns grow up, Prince gallops in, kisses her, everybody wakes up. They barely had a nap. (laughs) But that hasn't lasted. That's not the way people will tell the story. Although, of course, Sleeping Beauty, as originally told in a lot of the versions we have, was actually just a prelude. It was where a story began. Um, Sleeping Beauty was the intro to the real story, which is, she goes home with the prince, and his mother is appalling, and does all the things that appalling mother-in-laws do, visit to wit, uh, try and frame her daughter for having killed and eaten her children. And that was the exciting bit. That was, that was where the story went. Um, but that bit kind of faded. It, it, it died. The story itself mutated, and people seemed perfectly happy to have the happily ever after happen there, happen after, after the waking up. Stories have creators. Every story begins at some point with an act of imagining. Scientists, who are not in other ways fanciful, get very inventive when it comes to the origins of stories. I've read otherwise sensible papers, articles and books, which assume suddenly the existence of a communal undermined. Yours, mine, everybody in histories, and stories sitting deep in there, already fully formed, like jewels in a deep mine. The idea of an individual storyteller is actually discouraged, as is the idea that somebody plotted a story. Stories can only be seen in this context as being passed on from one person to another with details accreting or being lost on the way as they change. And some people who wrote about stories went to even stranger places. Uh, Perek states with certainty that in any story any early old story in any folk tale in which a character falls asleep, we know that this story was originally a dream. And because primitive humans were unable to tell the difference between waking and sleeping, they would have woken up with the story in their heads produced on some magical unconscious level. I remember reading that story and being absolutely fascinated by it. Have you ever... Tried to tell someone, even a friendly, sympathetic, even someone who loves you, <laughs> a dream of yours the next morning. <laughs> Have you ever watched their eyes glaze over? Watch them slowly lose the ability to feign interest probably along with the will to live. (laughs) Even as you start to suspect that threads of narrative causality that seemed obvious on waking don't exist. You're saying, well then, we were back in my old school, which was a kind of castle. And in the toilets, there was a tree. So we climbed it, and you realize that no matter how gripping it was for you <laughs> while it was going on, it is not going to be gripping by lunchtime. <laughs> Pictures, I think, may have been a way of transmitting stories. The drawings on cave walls but we assume are acts of worship or of sympathetic magic intended to bring hunters luck and good kills. I keep wondering if actually there's just ways of telling stories. We came over that ridge and we saw a herd of woolly bison. And I wonder that because people tell stories. It's an enormous part of what makes us human. We will do an awful lot for stories. We will endure a lot for stories. And stories in their turn, like some kind of symbiote, help us endure and make sense of our lives. a lot of stories do appear to begin as intrinsic to religions and belief systems they a lot of the ones we have have gods or goddesses in them they teach us how the world exists they teach us the rules of living in the world but they also have to come in an attractive enough package that we take pleasure from them and we want to help them propagate Human beings appreciate, human beings are hardwired to appreciate simile and metaphor. For those of you who are incredibly relieved to no longer be at school, and who are pretty sure you know the difference between the two, it's the ass simile is as beautiful as an airport. <laughs> that was Douglas Adams' example of a simile that nobody has ever used. He said, nobody ever says, as beautiful. It was as beautiful as an airport. <laughs> and a metaphor is when you say that something is something else to help you understand it better. The moon is a ghostly galleon tossed upon stormy seas. And it isn't, it's is not what the moon is. It's a big lump of rock <laughs> in the sky. It's Not a ghostly galleon. But, it is our capacity to use simile and use metaphor that I think allows us to understand and appreciate the best things about stories. Because people can have two contradictory things going on in their heads at the same time. And those contradictory things are these. A story is a lie, and a story is true. Stories, let us make no bones about it, are lies. They didn't really happen. Once Upon a Time is a code for, I am about to lie to you. (laughs) For that matter, this really happened to a friend of someone I know (laughs) is also code for I'm lying to you. (laughs) But I believe there is a possibility that this might actually have happened to somebody somewhere, somehow. (laughs) The act of reading a story or listening to a story is the act of knowing you are being lied to. But it's a true thing. You have walked with the people in the story. You've looked out through their eyes. You know what they believe. You walk with them, and by walking with them, you have left your own reality and entered theirs. And that gives us something very strange, because information in a story is something that you can access as real information. You can access it as if you have experienced it. You can use it and then you can pass it on. There's meant to be a break and a huge difference between the oral tradition of storytelling and the written tradition of storytelling. I'm not as convinced. People tell each other stories. There's um, a lovely example from the 1920s of folklorists collecting a story that had been told, that had been written in the 1890s by a lady named Lucy Clifford. And she'd written a story called The New Mother, and it was collected under the name of the Pear Drum. And what was great is they'd left out all of the bad writing. (laughs) All of the weirdness of the prose, They just got down to the story. But they kept the oddest bits of the story. The fact that it had happened, this weird story had happened to two children named Turkey and Blue Eyes. (laughs) That got remembered. That stayed in the oral tradition. There's a story I like to tell Um, because it changed me. And stories should change you. Good stories should change you. And this story, um, this isn't mine. This is a story of something that happened to my cousin Helen. Um, She's 97, and uh, she was in Poland during the war, and uh, was in the ghetto for some of the war. She was a a Holocaust survivor, a remarkable woman, and a few years ago she started telling me this story. of how, in the ghetto, they were not allowed books. If you had a book, somebody could, well, not just somebody, the Nazis, could put a gun to your head and pull the trigger. Books were forbidden. And she used to teach under the pretense of having a sewing class, of doing sewing. Uh, She would actually teach a class of about 20 little girls. They would come in for an hour a day, and she would teach them maths, she'd teach them Polish, she'd teach them grammar. And uh, one day somebody slipped her a Polish translation of Margaret Mitchell's novel, Gone with the Wind. And Helen stayed up. She she, uh, blacked out her window so she could stay up an extra hour. And she read a chapter of Gone with the Wind. And when the girls came in the next day, instead of teaching them, she told them what happened in the book. And each night, she'd stay up. And each day, she'd tell them the story. And I said, why? Why would you risk death for a story? And she said, because for an hour every day, those girls weren't in the ghetto. They were in the American South. They were, having, they were having adventures. They got away. I think four out of those 20 girls survived the war. And she told me how when she was an old woman, she found one of them who was also an old woman. And they got together and called each other by names from in Gone with the Wind, the names of characters. And I thought, you know, we decry too easily, writers, what we do, as being kind of trivial, the creation of stories, as being a trivial thing. But the magic, Of escapist fiction. And the thing I think that some people miss, I think I missed, is that it can actually offer you a genuine escape from a bad place. And in the process of escaping, it can furnish you with armor, with knowledge, with weapons with tools you can take back into your life to help make it better. I doubt there's anybody who loves reading who hasn't at some point gone to a book, sometimes when they're young, as a means of escaping from an otherwise intolerable situation. And you know what? It's a real escape. And when you come back, you come back better armed than when you left. Helen's story is a true story. And this is what we learn from it. That stories are worth risking your life for. They're worth dying for. Written stories and oral stories both offer escape. Escape from somewhere Escape to somewhere. I mentioned Douglas Adams before. Douglas understood media, understood change. Um, he essentially described the first e books long before most commuter trains were filled with people reading on them. And he also correctly perceived why even though most commuter trains are 100% people with e-books, there will always be physical books and a healthy market for physical books. Because Douglas told me, books are sharks. I remember saying to him, I have no idea what that means. (laughs) He said it incredibly confidently. He said, well, books are sharks. And it's like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, well, what you have to understand is that there were sharks back when there were dinosaurs. In many cases before there were dinosaurs, there were sharks. And now there are sharks. And the reason that there are still sharks, hundreds of millions after the first sharks, of years after the first sharks turned up, is that nothing has turned up that is better at being a shark than a shark is. (laughs) E books are absolutely fantastic at being several books and a newspaper. (laughs) They're really good portable bookshelves. That's why they're great on trains. But books are much better at being books. You can drop them. (laughs) I can guarantee that copy of the first Sandman omnibus still works. But stories aren't books. Books are simply one of the many storage mechanisms in which stories can be kept. And obviously people are one of the other storage mechanisms. Stories change. The professions and the media that we use to store and record and transmit stories will change. Not long ago, the people who stored and transmitted information were stonemasons. Now, not so much. (laughs) Unless we want the information to last. Paper or solar-powered digital headstones may be a thing. But a big lump of granite is pretty much forever. As individuals, we are cut off from humanity. As individuals, we are naked. We do not even know which plants Will kill us. Without the mass of human knowledge accumulated over millennia to buoy us up, we are in big trouble. With it, we are warm, fed, we have popcorn, we are sitting in comfortable seats, and we are capable of arguing with each other about really stupid things on the internet. <laughs> That's because we have stories. It's because we have information. In 1984, a man whose name I don't know how to pronounce. I think it's Thomas Sebok wrote a report for the Department of Energy. He was asked to create a report because they had a problem um, of what to do with nuclear waste repositories. They needed to devise a method of warning future generations not to mine or drill at that site unless they're aware of the consequences of their actions. And because the stuff that they would be putting in these nuclear waste repositories had a half-life of 10,000 years, they needed to figure out ways to get information to last for 10,000 years. And, They started by looking at, well, you can write. You can write things. The trouble with writing things is writing things lasts a certain amount of time. But anyone here who's actually tried to read Beowulf in the original (laughs) knows that that only takes you so far. Language changes. Words change meaning. You know, you could write that something is wicked. You could warn that this is like the bomb. And a generation could somehow come along and go, wicked, the bomb. We got cool stuff in there. You could, it could happen. Inconceivable, I know, but language changes. And if language is changing, well, what about pictographics? What if you put a big skull up? And Sebo pointed out, I'm going to call him Tom, because I know how that's pronounced. Um, Tom pointed out that even a skull means different things in different cultures. Some cultures might go, ah, skull, symbol of warning. Some might go, Symbol of fantastic candy days. (laughs) This is the place where the good stuff is. What he actually came up with, I'm gonna read this, because I love it. Uh, He said that the, 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 the prime recommendation of the Human Interference Task Force of the Department of Energy Um, was that information be launched and artificially passed on into the short-term and long-term future with the supplementary aid of folkloristic devices, in particular, a combination of an artificially created and nurtured ritual and legend. The most positive aspect of such a procedure is it need not be geographically localized or tied to any one language and culture. So the uninitiated would be steered away from the hazardous site for reasons other than the scientific knowledge of the possibility of radiation and its implications. Essentially, the reason would be accumulated superstition to shun a certain area permanently. A ritual with the legend retold year by year with presumably slight variation the actual, quote, truth, would be entrusted exclusively to what we might call for dramatic emphasis, an atomic priesthood. (laughs) That is a commission of knowledgeable physicists, experts in radiation sickness, anthropologists, and whatever additional expertise may be called for in the future, membership in this priesthood, um, would be, they would pick themselves and the best mechanism for doing this, he says, is at present unclear. (laughs) Folklore specialists that they've consulted say they know of no precedent, nor could they think of a parallel situation except the well-known but ineffectual curses associated with the burial sites of some Egyptian pharaohs which didn't deter greedy grave robbers from digging for hidden treasure. Which is true, up to a point. The first emperor of China died over 2,000 years ago. And the site of his tomb was lost, very intentionally lost. You know, he killed anybody who knew where it was. It was a magnificent act of tomb losing. (laughs) And then one day, in a field in China, Somebody unearthed a terracotta warrior and then they found another one and they excavated the warriors and archaeologists worked out very quickly where the actual mausoleum had to be. But the stories that had come down to us 2,300 years after the emperor of China had died, now became a warning. Remember those lakes of mercury? That stuff is really poisonous. It doesn't even have a half-life. It's just there. As Terry Pratchett once said, radiation is 10,000 years, but arsenic is forever. <laughs> and so they didn't immediately start digging. Instead. They checked, confirmed the presence of incredibly high quantities of mercury and have been figuring out what to do ever since. And when they figure out how to get in there without dying, they will start excavating. The long now, the clock of the long now, is about planning for the long term and thinking in the long term, in a world in which people appear to be thinking in the shorter and shorter term, not even necessarily at this point about things that will take them to the end of their lifetime, which at least at one point you would have thought people would go, well, you know, I'll be dead before that's a problem. Looking around now. Of the mess that we're making of things on this planet. You want to go to people, you know, actually you won't be. You will still be around. We could run out of water, you'll be here. <laughs> Having to figure out what to do with no water. What to do when the oceans are screwed up. What to do when Twitter finally becomes sentient. Tom Sebok concluded you couldn't actually create a story that would last 10,000 years. You could only create a story that would last for three generations for ourselves, for our children, and for their children. But what we can do, I think, is try and create stories that are interesting enough and important enough that our grandchildren might want to tell those stories to their grandchildren. Because that's the purpose of stories. It's what they're for. They make life worth living, and sometimes they keep us alive. Thank you.
0: There you go. Have a seat. Whoa, sorry about that. You know, Danny Hillis, our friend, thinks that humanity is in a kind of transition now from one narrative to another. And there's some of the confusion we have is that the narrative that he thinks has been going on for a long time is um, man conquers nature. We basically take on all the difficulties of uh, the natural world and one by one uh, master them. And so we talk now about the Anthropocene. And if that's, and in, in, in we see the downside of mastering nature and getting into some of the problems you mentioned. So he thinks we're working up on another narrative that doesn't have the problems that emerged from the last narrative, but is equally compelling and gives the kind of meaning that you talk about. Do you have any sense of, one, what that transition, what a transition from one grand narrative to another is about, and do you have any sense of what narrative wants to emerge?
1: What a great question. Um, I think that for me it's much more of the idea of going back um, and I think it, it's partly about the, the narrative that we're in now feels like um, a narrative defined by, by the Alvin Toffler future shock mm-hmm. idea the idea that things are just changing so rapidly um, that we are all, we're scrambling to catch up. Mm-hmm. We, we, we're scrambling to stay in the present. If you stop paying attention, you will be swept back in time. Um, it's, it's wonderful right now talking to people about telephone use. I heard somebody say uh, last night, use the phrase, of course, I'm of the generation where you could just telephone somebody, call them, make a voice call. You didn't have to text them <laughs> to let them know you were going to be calling them.
0: Right.
1: And I thought, I'm of that generation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's that's it. You know, my, my, my daughter Maddie, who I can embarrass just by acknowledging her existence from this stage. <laughs> um <laughs> Is Is... Her telephone, her phone, is something that the only people who ever actually phone her to talk on it
2: mm-hmm.
1: is me and her mum. It is a device that is used for a thousand things and that peculiarly parents use to call you. <laughs> I love that. I love the idea that, that I am now some kind of weird fossil. <laughs> I'm like my mum's friends, who would write thank you letters. If you, and, and you know, in the 1970s, I'm going, why, I was at your house yesterday, why have you written a thank you letter? It, it, it seems so peculiar, it seemed like a remnant of, of a Victorian time, it seemed like a remnant of something. Um, the idea that you're getting swept up, and moving forward, and that Things are changing so fast, Mm -hmm. and that you know the lovely thing about for me about coming to the Bay Area is there are people who will use phrases like the singularity and actually mean it, Um, (laughs) like it's not even ironic. (laughs) And it goes
0: in and out. But
1: you want to be able to. But for me, the, the 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 Danny narrative is actually not a narrative of moving forward. It's just taking taking a step back, taking the long view, going, look, it actually doesn't matter what you do with your phone, and it doesn't matter that everybody here who is of the generation that knows you have to text Mm -hmm. before you would make a voice call, which, why would you do that? Mm -hmm. Um, That they, in their turn, are gonna turn around in eight years' time and say to people, but why do I have to send them a photograph of my genitals before I talk to them? And, <laughs> and people are going, well, how can you trust anybody who hasn't sent you a photo of their genitalia? And you're going, but no, but, but look, I'm just of a generation where you, you got to know somebody first before you were introduced to your genitalia, and then going, well, you're old, you know, and it's going to be a whole kind of, you know that, sorry, Maddy. Um <laughs> You know that things are going to keep changing, and that is the only constant, except that there are things that don't change, and there are people, and there is this planet, and we're on it, and uh, we had better, you know, for me, the the whole thing of the clock of the long now and of the long now is just try and think in big chunks, because at the moment that you're trying to think in a 10,000-year chunk, Mm you go, you know, if, if we use all that stuff up, there won't be any, mm-hmm. which is kind of one of those moments of, of horrible realization. I remember writing uh, a mm-hmm. book years ago called, called Good Omens with Terry Pratchett. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and we had a little rant in there about the idea of the afterlife of telling people that you know, it'll all get sorted out in heaven. And we're saying, actually, you know, it, it's very useful to point people at the fact that you are here right now on this planet, and if you kill whales, then you've got dead whales. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you kill all the whales, you don't have any whales. And that's, nobody's gonna come in and sort that out. So you had better look at consequences, and you had better try and look at things long term. and for a, a humorous book about the Antichrist, mm-hmm. the end of the world, and why we're all going to die, we tried to say you know, <laughs> useful things in the...
0: You know, I realized I was a fossil, and I read the other day that in Thailand, they're, they're having a problem with uh, up-boob selfies. Up-boob selfies of, I guess, ladies uh, taking photographs, looking up, uh, that don't include their faces, so the Thai government is having a real problem finding who the criminals are that are doing this. (laughs) (laughs) Now that's a workaround. Uh, Chris does have a a relevant question here. Um, Do you think the internet, Facebook, Twitter, blogs, and so on uh, is helping or hurting literacy and the quality of writing
1: and storytelling? Um, I think a lot more writing is happening. Yes. Due to the internet. Um, And I think that bit is great. Mm I just love the fact that more people are writing. I think uh, the biggest problem that we have, and I think this just applies to that in the same way that it applies to everything else, is we have gone from a scarcity-based information economy to a glut information economy. In the old days, Finding the thing that you needed was like finding the flower in the desert. You would have to go out into the desert you would find the flower. And now it's like finding a flower in the jungle. Uh Uh, Or worse, finding the flower in the flower gardens. Um, So do I think it's helping? Do I think it's hurting? I think it's great that people are writing. Uh Um, I think a lot of people are writing who would not, have to have written and did not expect themselves to be writing, but I also think that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are writing fiction, mm-hmm. are writing things that they simply wouldn't have written, mm-hmm. because there wouldn't have been an audience, because there wasn't a way of getting it out.
0: So there's more storytelling and more story reading, There's
1: right? more storytelling, there's more story reading. Um, the task becomes finding the good stuff for whatever your definition of good stuff is. Mm-hmm. And your definition of good stuff might be some horribly specialized form of Harry Potter slash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's finding the good stuff out there in, in the glut, in the jungle. Um, and it, it, it fascinates. You know, I was talking about good omens just now. Mm. Uh, good omens is about 105,000 words. Um... Writers there's,
0: always know exactly how many words <laughs> have been written.
1: Um, and there's probably out there in the world five million words of Good Omens fan fiction.
0: Really? Um,
1: oh my God! And you sort of go, well, Talk that,
0: about reproducing. It's out there, exactly.
1: Sto- it's it's this the idea of stories getting out there and just reproducing. Um, I love that. I think that, that's, that's very strange and very, it's a wonderful thing. I don't necessarily know how how things are going to work in the world of publishing, story finding, story reading, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, um, but at least I'm not pretending that I know. I, I, I think weird things are happening, hmm. um, and it's, it's really interesting watching some systems break and watching other things make people very, very happy.
0: See, um, a Riff, kind of on your point about Twitter going sentient, you would be the first to know, I think, if that happens, because what do you have, a million and a half? Followers?
1: Two, Two, Two point, million. 2.1 million followers out there. And you know, I suspect that some of them may not exist in real life.
0: (laughs) And they're reading you instead of reproducing them. Nina Salvador asks "Uh, Much of our media right now is concerned with the idea of the emergence of a strong AI, Uh, sentient Twitter. Uh, If you were to write this story, how would it go? The strong AI thing is the current. Dark singularity version story that's going around, and so you know, Hawking is scared to death of it. Elon Musk is scared to death of it.
1: How would I write it? How would it go? I don't. I, I don't know. I do know that I would write it personally. I personally. would make. I would make it small and personal because that's how mm-hmm.
0: I write stories. So you would be. You would be taking the reader inside the emerging consciousness of this AI's.
1: Or oh, yeah, much more likely, uh, you know, inside the consciousness of the person who owns the toaster in which mm-hmm. the AI is <laughs> manifesting. Yeah. story. One of those things that was... When I was a kid, reading science fiction and loving science fiction... Um, I thought you could classify science fiction into the people who were obviously writing about the future that you were traveling into.
2: Mm.
1: There, was, there was Asimov, there was Heinlein, there was Clarke, maybe Larry Niven, you know, you, these, these guys who would, they could do the techie stuff and it was all right. And then there was the ones who were just making it up and weren't, frankly, weren't even trying. Um, <laughs> like J.G. Ballard yeah. and, and, and Philip K. Dick. Um, and now I look around and I go, Ballard got it right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Dick got it right. And, you know, Heinlein and Asimov and Clark, bless their little cotton socks, mm-hmm. got it so gloriously wrong. Mm-hmm. Pretty much completely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you read, you read Philip K. Dick now, and you watch your, your toaster arguing with your fridge.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and you're
1: going, yeah, I know this world. This is, this is the world we are heading toward. It's, you watch Ballard writing things like Memories of the Space Age mm-hmm. um, or, or, or Crash, you know, a, a terrifyingly uh, percipient a piece of, of fiction about the death of Lady Di, uh, long before she had. Oh my goodness, you got that. That's really what, you know, it, it's, it's yeah. sort of like going, oh, this is, um, they, were, they were definitely, it, it was the ones who I thought were just making it up as they went along, mm-hmm. who actually were getting the future kind of right. Which then there's Bill the Gibson, of course. And Bill, but I'm never sure with Bill how much of it was just making him, making up the future and us all going, yeah, that's cool. We'll go there.
0: <laughs> James Welcher asks, um, he's worried about the dark side of stories that stay with us for a long time, such as uh, many stories that blame women
1: for original sin. Um, are
0: there some stories worth
1: forgetting? I, I think that there is an incredible amount of misogyny um, in an awful lot of old stories, and and I tend, partly because of that, mm-hmm. to find myself um, sympathizing with those um mythographers and such, who go, well, it probably started out with women in charge Mm -hmm. and having the stories and having the magic before one day some guy went, well, you know, they may may be able to do this amazing baby-making magic, and they may be smarter than us, but we're big and we're hairy. Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) ha-ha, we are are now going to cast them down, Uh, you know, and... and, um, and we're going to make up our own stories and religions, and mm-hmm. in those, we are going to, we're going to put them in their place, um, which I like the idea that one of the things we're doing now is trying, or some of us are trying to redress that balance. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: So, gender is a recurring story theme. Animals are an astonishingly recurring story mode. What's... Have you... Do you use animals? Do you tell You ever hung around animals? a
1: cat? Huh? I mean, yes. You, you have to. Um, I don't believe there's any... any there, there's, there's an entire website of just authors with cats, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can tell that they are giving us all our best ideas.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I love writing animals, Animal, I, I, but I also think that um, one of the things about animals in fiction is they are your first attempt to put your head into the other, into experiencing another, the idea of another. One thing that I, I thought about talking about in that talk, and then I thought, you know, it's. Ju- I'm, I know I'm going to wander all over the place. Mm. Um, probably this is too far to wander, so I didn't. But fiction. I, I list a, f- a bunch of things that fiction does, and a bunch of things that stories do. Mm. Um, I don't talk about probably the most important thing that I think fiction does, um, which is it lets us look out through other eyes. I said that, but it also gives us empathy. The act of looking out through other eyes tells us something huge and important, Mm -hmm. which is that other people exist. that we are not, you know, it's, it's very, very, you, you look at um, some narratives from some cultures and you go, there is absolutely no empathy here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There, there is no idea that what you are doing, um, that, that anybody exists as anything other than a mm-hmm. self-motivated thing Um I think one of the things that fiction can give us is just the realization that, no, behind every pair of eyes, there's somebody like us. And perhaps looking out through animal eyes, there's something like us. Looking out through alien eyes, there's somebody like us.
0: One of our speakers in this series was Steven Pinker, who did this book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, about the, basically, perpetual decline and cruelty, violence. and justice. And he points to the rise of the novel in Europe as one of the sort of turning points where the circle of empathy was uh, encouraged to get suddenly wider. Mm -hmm. Because you would get inside characters who you would never meet or talk to in real life, but you're inside their story. And so a book comes along like Uncle Tom's Cabin and you're inside characters in a sympathetic frame that you now have to take their situation seriously in a way that you never did before, and it changed human behavior.
1: Absolutely. Is that your view? And, and people, and, and what's wonderful about that is these characters were lies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They didn't exist. Harriet Beecher Stowe had gone and made up people, but making up people Those made up people, when you've lived with them and you can care about them, you can suddenly extrapolate. You can make the head jump to real people. You live with them
0: means you're living with them through a tale, through a a series of events, situations they have to deal with. And you now are with them trying to solve the problems that they're facing. Exactly. So you are walking a mile in their shoes.
1: Christopher. Uh, I, I was just to say also, I mean, you look at somebody like Dickens, the mm-hmm. social novels of Dickens, okay. where Dickens actually, for good or ill, um, wound up, in a lot of his novels, just taking social situations that he wanted to let people know about. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of cases, causing reform. Mm-hmm. Um, real, actual social reform happened. People changed their behavior, um, or institutions were abolished. Things were changed because people who had nothing to do with something or were content to let it go uh, suddenly had their noses rubbed in the Victorian workhouse system, in the court of chancery, in the things that he had problems with, uh, in, you know, the, the, some of the terrible schools. And reformers came from, they came from caring. They came from having traveled with fictional people to whom terrible things were happening and going, this thing which has happened to these people that I care about should be stopped. And they, and it was stopped.
0: It seems like he he attempted an even more amazing thing with something like the Christmas story, um, Scrooge and so on. Um, It has become a mythic level story, which is sort of told at Christmas time again and again. And and the the turns of that plot is a story that everybody now can refer to. Do you think you've looked at Dickens pretty closely Do you think Dickens had in mind that he was going to do a mythic-level story? And it had to be short, and it had to have a ghost. (laughs) And uh, it was going to be this amazing long knowledge story of binding past, present, and future. And he was going to go deep and lasting. Do you think that was actually in his mind, or he was just writing a good yarn?
1: I think... um I think he was writing a good yarn. I think he also discovered, having written it, what a good story he'd he'd written. And he Um, performed it a lot. He did. I I actually performed it at the New York Public Library dressed as Dickens using his his copy. Uh, Because Dickens had a, a... He he worked up a performance version of it, and which cut out anything he didn't need. And the New York Public Library approached me, and they said, would you come in for Christmas and read from Dickens's prompt copy the the version of A Christmas Carol that Dickens performed? And I said, I will only do it if you give me Dickens' gear and a beard, because I didn't have one at the time. So somebody stuck one on. (laughs) And it was so disappointing I grew this one. Um, (laughs) Mostly in case somebody asks me again. (laughs) I I will have a beard ready. Um, But it was absolutely fascinating for me reading Dickens' version because this was, um, you know, I was talking about sort of evolution honing. Mm -hmm. He'd done it in front of crowds and in front of crowds and in front of crowds, and he knew what worked. And there was stuff, when I read it through beforehand, I was like, you've thrown out some of the most famous lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're, they're really the, the lines you expect to have, and some of them just be taken out. And you've included the scene of playing blind man's buff with the fat cousin. Why would you have that in there? Okay, well, you've got that in. I'll, I'll. And then I performed it, and it ran beautifully, and just as the tension. Got to its highest. Then we have the scene of blind man playing blind man's buff for the fat cousin, and everybody's laughing. And I'm going, this is brilliant. He actually, he really did hone this thing um, in performance. But he also had hit upon this beautiful structure, mm-hmm. which then um, you could take, you could insert almost anything in it, be it Muppets or Black Adder. Um, and it will still work. Mm-hmm. It's like somebody who built a train. You go, oh my gosh, it's a train. It will, it will work. Um, I've only, I think, stolen it once. Um, but I remember the point where I woke up, and I, it was one of those moments of actually waking up in the night. It's a long time ago, 26, 27 years ago. Um, I had a phone call from DC Comics, from my editor at DC Comics, saying, Neil, we'd like you to write something. Could you write something that is a guide to all of the magical characters in the DC universe that also has a story and is interesting, but that people could buy as a sort of guide to everything and has a plot? And I said, no, that's stupid. put down the phone, and did that thing where you are almost asleep, and you're almost, almost asleep, and then I went, oh, hang on, I could do a Christmas carol. Mm -hmm. You just need past, present, future, only I'd have to do past, present, weird fairylands and places, future. (laughs) Yeah, I can do that. And I got up and wrote it down, (laughs) because I I knew that it would actually vanish if I just let it go to sleep. And I did a book called Books of Magic, which was me just ripping off, and again, it was ripping off that structure. Um, going, it works, you have, you, know, you have a structure. I didn't actually need to reform anybody in that one.
0: But. So when you perform, I mean, talk about empathy. <clears throat> you study Dickens, you read Dickens, you think about Dickens, you steal from Dickens. And then for One Amazing Evening, you are Dickens on the stage. What was that like?
1: Um, it was absolutely fascinating um, and it was fascinating for me mostly because um, one of the things that have fascinated me most about Dickens was why he did these talks, why he did public, you know, Dickens went on the road and, and would be, went all, went all over America, doing An Evening with Charles Dickens, where he would read selected passages, where he'd do the whole of this cut-down Christmas carol and a bunch of other stuff, three hours of Dickens. Um, I first became aware of that when I was about 11, when a Welsh actor named Emlyn Williams came to my local theatre doing his Mm. version of The Evening with (coughs) Charles Dickens. And I went and, and loved it and never forgot that Dickens did this thing. Um, And the reason he did it was that at the time copyright was broken and his books, he was the best-selling author in America and because copyright didn't quite work between England and America, his books were all pirated and he didn't make any money. So he went, well, how can I monetize being the best-selling author in America and making no money? And he went, well, people will come and see me. And that absolutely, you know, he went home rich, um, and uh, with a a solid American audience, um, having actually taken something that should have been a huge problem, the fact that copyright didn't actually provide him with a royalty, it cost him. cost him some of his health. It, and, I was going to say it cost him significantly in his health.
0: And um, yet he had that thing writers, as writers seldom have, which is the instant feedback instead of the 14 months later feedback of the normal book po- publishing process. And the people are now getting online, and a Twitter writer gets, you know... And he, fact, time you know, so. it
1: still doesn't... Um, there, there, there is still not really feedback. Feedback for me is that moment where I read a short story to an audience, and I hear, uh, you know, the, my, my favorite moment of audience feedback ever was um, in 2008, I had this mad idea of instead of doing a signing tour with the graveyard book, there were eight chapters, one of which was twice as long as all of the others. Hmm. So I would divide that one in half, and I would do nine stops, and I would read a chapter at each stop. Hmm. And I thought that will be, and I'll I'll pre-sign a thousand books or 2,000 books at each place, just like I signed the books out there this afternoon, you, I can sign fast, and I don't mind doing it. it it's and that's that's a quick process. Mm-hmm. It's stopping and talking to people, and you know, hugging people and and telling them and answering their questions. That's the thing that keeps you there till three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but the signing is quick, so I I'd pre-sign a bunch of books and I do the reading and. I hadn't realized when I thought, okay, I will just stop halfway through chapter seven, (laughs) um, that chapter seven has the biggest, at the the exact point that I needed to stop on that page, there was the biggest twist and cliffhanger. And of course, it's not a cliffhanger really if you're reading chapter seven, except that I'm in Los Angeles, and I got to that moment in the story, and the audience went oh! And I could hear 2,000 people all going oh! at the same time, which was a feeling of power that I have never experienced before. <laughs> and then I closed the book, and an entire audience went oh. <laughs> And it's great. We were filming it. You can actually go online and watch you can watch me doing it, but you can hear the sound effects. <laughs> that, was an, um, that was power. Mm-hmm. And that was feedback. And that was going, okay, oh, this thing works.
0: And you left them in, hanging, and they all went and bought the book to find out how it turned out. Well,
1: you know, that's... I don't want to have...
0: <laughs> yeah, the cliffhangers are amazing. Um, and then... And we all know what a cliff is and what a hanging off a cliff is. It actually means something. Christopher writes You write frequently about life, death, and their connection. Have your thoughts about death changed over the course of your work? And, um, and you and Terry Pratchett have gone round and round on this, and, and Terry Pratchett recently died. What, what's death for you lately?
1: Uh, death. You know, it's interesting. My thoughts about death and my feelings about death have not really changed. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, you know, I've always regarded death in some ways as, at least for a writer and emotionally, the line from Peter Pan, death will be an awfully big adventure, Mm -hmm. um, has always been huge for me. Um, As... I remember the the times that I was scared of dying. Mm-hmm. Um, the the time I was most scared of dying, um, I was three, maybe four issues into Sandman. I'd written, I think I'd written four, mm-hmm. and the first couple were getting drawn. Um, I'd written The Whole of Black Orchid. it's my first graphic novel, which Dave McKean had been painting. Dave was three quarters of the way through it and had already decided that the artistic style that he had used in Black Orchid was simply wrong. Hmm. And was not quite sure whether it should be buried. Felt it probably shouldn't because he'd done it. But now he needed to move on and do something else. And he gave me all of the art that he'd done so far to take to um, DC Comics on a plane with him. And um, because he couldn't afford to get it scanned. So I'm on a plane couriering, I'm going from England to America on a a Pan Am flight, Mm -hmm. Pan Am flight five. Um, Going to DC, and I'm carrying with me three quarters of Black Orchid. And I know that if that plane goes down, Dave is never going to redraw that stuff. (laughs) He's already itching to get on with Arkham Asylum. I know that the beginning of Sandman isn't really very good, but this thing in my head that I think it can get to is gonna be really good, but I'm gonna have to at least get through to about issue eight where death appears to get that to work. Um, And frankly, if I die at issue three, DC probably are just gonna dump the thing. It's probably easier. So that flight, I did, I was just scared. I did the entire flight mentally trying to hold the plane up. (laughs) Scared that if I took my attention off it, maybe it would crash. Um, Hmm.
0: Responsibility not to interrupt. it,
1: It was, and it was that, and I was absolutely terrified of dying because I thought if I die right now, there's this really cool and interesting career, and there's this life of stuff that I want to do, and it will never happen, mm-hmm. and nobody will quite know that I could have been good. Mm-hmm. Um, and rather peculiarly, exactly one week later to the day, um, Pan Am Flight Five uh, exploded. Um, it was there, it was a, a well, no wonder you remember there was that a it Libyan bomb. And I was vaguely relieved that I had not been on it. It was definitely, but I, you know, there was. It was interesting toward the end of Sandman Mm -hmm. when I thought actually. I would think, die not die. If I die now, nobody will know how Sandman would end. It'll be like Edwin Drood. Mm -hmm. Would drive them nuts. Probably shouldn't. I'm, uh, but mostly, my attitude towards death is I've done so much fun stuff. Ah, I, I've, I've done all of this great stuff.
0: So, all of this has to do where you are in the arc, If it's okay to have done a bunch, then death is not such a big deal. But early on, and you know, uh, soldiers dying in war, almost all young, people yeah. interrupted, and. It's you know, like, it's, it's,
1: it's, for me, it's all about potential. Hmm. Um, Terry. Terry's death made me a lot of things. It made me very sad, losing my friend. Hmm. It also made me really angry. Um, I remember that. And when he was sort of fading into that,
0: what were you angry about?
1: I I was angry about a lot of things. I think one of the things I was angry about, angriest about, was one of the things that Terry pointed out when um, he announced to the world incredibly bravely that he had Alzheimer's. When he was, he was diagnosed, he was, you know, 59 years old, 58 years old, diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Um, and he pointed out that for every $200 spent on cancer research,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, there's something like three cents spent on Alzheimer's research, mm-hmm. um, except the possibility that you are going to get one of these cancers is relatively low, and the probability that you are going to get Alzheimer's is relatively high. Mm-hmm. And, but because we regard it as an inevitable, um, we're not trying to fix it, and we should be. And
0: didn't he become sort of an advocate for uh, assisted? For voluntary dying assisted dying yeah
1: he he definitely became a um a a serious advocate mm-hmm. for having the right the, essentially the right to choose your own death mm-hmm. uh the right to go when you want to um in a situation like that in a world like that mm-hmm. and um he did it. Angrily, nobly. Mm. Um, And then, as it happened, he never, you know, there was the last time I I saw him and we talked, he rather proudly confided in me that, you know, he had the the stuff. The stuff had arrived mysteriously, and it was kept in a secret place. I'm looking at him going, Terry, you need help to find your way to the bathroom at this point. (laughs) You are never going to find the secret container with the death pills that you have put inside the combination thing, the secret stuff that you've stashed. You will never find it. You are going to have to say to Rob, your assistant, Rob, can I have the death pills now? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Rob is going to say, no, Terry. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it never came to that. Well, he must have had some comfort that it was there, uh, even. Oh, I think I think it gave him enormous comfort that it was there. Mm-hmm. I think that was actually what, in a strange way, allowed him mm-hmm. to face his death with equanimity. Um, you know, mm-hmm. much as when I gave up smoking, I kept, which was well over thirty years ago now. At le- for several years, there was a carton of cigarettes in the freezer. Mm. Um, th- just I knew it was there. Mm. If, if I got up in the middle of the night and thought, right, that's it, I'm giving up, giving up smoking, it would be there. Oh. And that carton actually was what allowed me to give up smoking. And it was there when I needed it, so I didn't need it. Mm. And I think the same with Terry's mysterious, Terry's mystery pills that he could never actually have found, but he knew they were there.
0: Something about options in there, maintaining options. So probably last question. Um, you hauled off and wrote a, a whole talk for tonight, which thank you, this is not just standing up and doing a reading or, or uh, you know, your standard Neil Gaiman talk. You really thought through this thing and, and delivered it. Having thought through this thing about how stories last, uh, was there anything that turned up in the research or in thinking of how to tell about it, that surprised you were interested, you or sort of made it worth it for you to go through the exercise.
1: I, well, what's interesting for me is I've been, um, we started talking about me giving this talk about two years ago, two and a mm-hmm. half years ago. And so I've spent two and a half years <laughs> obsessing on... The long hard... It, it's <laughs> the long talk for the long now. It's over um, now. <laughs> and, and, the weird thing is, then I would f- every time I would find a thing, and I'd go, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to use this in my long now talk. I would then try it out, and so I would I would tell people things and, and go and follow, th- and they would they would then give me feedback, and I would follow things up. So that actually was lovely because it kept accreting
2: mm-hmm.
1: more and more information. So this was positively Homeric tonight. It was it. tonight was was it's like the last time mm-hmm. that I get to say some of this stuff because this was what it was for. It was for this talk. Um, I think, for me, uh, the thing that I, I really took away from two and a half years of thinking about this um, was an idea that I, I talk about in the talk, but I don't go as mad as I do occasionally when I, I'm actually you know, in a bar explaining this idea, that <laughs> that really you can just view people as this peculiar byproduct that stories use to breed. Um, you know, really, it's the stories that are the life form. They are older than us, they are smarter than us, they keep going, but they need human beings to reproduce mm-hmm. uh, much as we need food or whatever to reproduce. You know, we need, we need things to keep ourselves alive. Um, and maybe stories are, really are like viruses. Um, but the idea that, that functionally they are symbiotic, they give, um, mm-hmm. and they give back, and the reason why people are genuinely, I think, addicted to story. Mm-hmm. Um, we need it so much more than we think we need it. Um, And and the reason why story is so important to us is because it's actually this thing that we have been using since the dawn of humanity to become more than just one person. Um, Whether you want to go to the the Australian indigenous people and their stories of the Dreamtime which are not only stories of of um, the songline stories, where you actually get to tell a history that is a legend, that is a myth, that is a map, mm-hmm. and that is a map that may go back 20,000 years or 30,000 years. Um, ways that stories are ways that we communicate important things. Um, But the idea that maybe stories are these things that really are genuinely symbiotic organisms that we live with that allow human beings to advance, it's this mad thing that really did turn up and become very real to me um, while I was preparing the talk, and which I kind of throttled back because I didn't want any of you to think I'm odd. (laughs)
0: Neil, you're on. Thank you for this.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.